Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Robert Solomon. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Robert as a person. Professor Solomon is a thought leader and a esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snap, uh, snapshot. Robert Solomon is the Dean of Executive Programs at NYU Stern. His research is on international expansion and governance, foreign entry and location decisions, cross-border knowledge transfer, and globalization. Robert has published extensively in all our top journals, has written two books. He sits on the editorial review boards of AMJ, SMJ, JIPS, Strategy Science and Global Strategy Journal. He received AIB Silver Medal for Outstanding Scholarship and the Bright Idea Award. He was named on the favorite professors list by Poets and Quants, and his books were recognized among the best business uh, books. He was a finalist for AIB's Richard Farmer Dissertation Award, and he won the Better Richmond Dissertation Award, as well as the Newman Dissertation Prize from AOM in 2003. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> so originally, I think my earliest desire was to be the third baseman for the New York Mets, <laughs> but I quickly realized that uh, given my limited athletic abilities, that wasn't likely to happen. And, and then later on, I think I was maybe somewhere in the eight to 10 range. I told my parents that I was going to be an investment banker until I learned how long investment, bower, uh, uh, you know, investment bankers work per week. And then, and then that went away only to discover later that like, you know, PhDs and, and, and faculty members work a lot long hours too. Uh, the only difference is that we get to choose the hours we work, but but that was originally, I think, third base for the New York Mets was my was my original dream. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey on the, the New Jersey shore, and then when I was in high school, we moved to Florida. Huh, perfect. And uh, how did you choose academia? So I think the choice happened in college. I was at university and I think it was uh, sometime in my junior year, I was struggling with what did I wanted to be when I grew up. And, you know, all my friends were talking about all these businesses that they were going to work at and all these careers they were going into. And I went to a business school for undergrad and many of them were going into banking. They were going into investment banking or they were going into trading or they were going into institutional sales. And I think those sounded interesting, but I was more interested in, reading, discussing, talking about the dynamics that happened behind the scenes, all the things that, you know, why uh, the world worked the way it worked, why businesses made the decisions that they made. And uh, it, was a con it was conversations in my junior year in college that convinced me that becoming a researcher and an academic was the right path for me. And how do you choose international business specific, international strategy? So... Uh, a little bit about sort of my background. My 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 dad's family is from Spain. My mom's family is from Italy, and my father speaks with a very pronounced Spanish accent because he didn't come to the United States until he was thirty years old. So I was acutely aware growing up that we were sort of different from everybody else in you know in the neighborhood that I grew up in, and and you know we spoke Spanish at home, and and. Um, we did things a little bit differently than, than other kids. And again, my dad had this, this pronounced accent. And so kids would ask questions about why we were different. And that 
always stuck with me, that, that notion of difference. And, and as a child, my parents would send me to Spain to go spend the summers with my family in Spain. And even there, I was struck by how different I was in comparison to everybody else, all the other kids in, in Spain. And so this notion of difference just carried with me. And, and so that was something that, that I grew up with those experiences and those experiences drove uh, my curiosity and, and, and indifference and in particular differences across international borders. And that's how I ended up sort of marrying my interest in becoming an academic from what I discussed before in the previous question with interest in the international business and the international side of it. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. <laughs> I don't know that there's that much really interesting about me, uh, even from what you can glean on my CV. But um, the, I think one thing that people don't know about me, I'm, I'm an avid runner. I've been an avid runner for, for a long time. I've, I've run a handful of marathons. And my goal is I'd like to reach 10 marathons. That's my goal. I have two more to go. And, but I want to reach those after 50 years old. So my goal is to get to do 50 years old, run two more marathons and then retire from marathon running anyway. So hopefully that, uh, that, you know, I, I can achieve that. You're talking about the actual full, full size 40 kilometer one, right? Right. That's right. That's right. I've run actually uh, three, in, uh, actually, I, I've run three Boston marathons, in fact. So that's something that I'm, I'm particularly proud of, wow. uh, qualifying for those, those marathons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Something to be proud of, for sure. Uh, if you didn't become an academic and researcher and end up where you are, uh, what would be the second best career path for you? Travel journalist? Uh, I, I think I... Uh, I, I, you know, and again, this is something that 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 came up with me from from a really young age. That this travel, these experiences, having family in Spain, having family in Italy, uh, and and have and being fortunate enough to have traveled to see them growing up, uh, that sort of just instilled a love of travel. And 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 I've I, I enjoy traveling, and that's probably that's probably what I would be doing: travel writing. Uh, regrets and the regrets in life. Wow. Besides not going into travel writing as a profession, um, I can't, you know, I, I look back and I, I think I've been very fortunate sort of career wise. And, and uh, I think one of the regrets that I have is that I wished I'd taken more classes as an undergraduate student, more varied classes in areas that weren't business, because my, my, a lot of my education was very business focused. I went to an undergraduate business program. So I wish I'd read more of the classics I'd wish I'd taken more philosophy classes and I'd wish I'd taken or had studied sociology a bit more. Um, so, so, so those are some of my, my academic regrets. Interesting. Um, what's your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Um, well, I, I think one of the things that we learn in our profession is that failure is goes part and parcel with the job. I mean, you fail, you know, we're like baseball players. In, in baseball players, if, if you fail 70% of, of the time, you're doing a great job. And I think in academics, if, if you're not failing, you're not doing it right. Because I, I you know, there are so many times I, I send 
we see, you know, with my co-authors, we send things out to journals and, and we get articles rejected. And that's, that's part of, of the business. Now, my biggest failure, I mean, so, so let me preface this by saying I failed a lot. Um, so my biggest failure, I don't know that I have one that I would point to and say that that's sort of a, a failure that defined me. I mean, I've, I've, I've been not offered jobs, jobs that I thought I wanted uh, coming out of the PhD program. I've been denied jobs or, or not given offers. I've been rejected. I've had countless papers rejected. Um, promotions, I, you know, I've, I've been rejected from promotions. I've, I've been actually, I was, I had a job offer that I received uh, where I received a job offer from the department and I was close to taking that job offer. And then they told me that they couldn't put me up for tenure and that the dean told them that the provost was going to deny me for tenure if I, so I couldn't accept the job. So, I mean, these, I've had lots of failures. Uh, those are just, you know, just some. Interesting. So how do you explain your research to people who don't read uh, AI, uh, JIPS or SMJ to laymen on the street? Like, what do you do for a living and why is it important? So, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I just wanted to share, like you shared some questions with me before, uh, before this conversation. And in those set of questions, the question was posed a little bit differently. And I prepared an answer for the question that was posed, okay. which is slightly different question. from, wait, uh, no, no, I'll, I'll come back to it. Because the way it was posed that like, you're in a new location and you go to a bar and there are these locals there and the locals ask you, so, so the locals ask you what you do. And I think I'm more prepared for that question. I think I'll answer that one, if that's okay. okay. You're so stranded in a small village in Spain. Yeah. You're traveling to Spain. Exactly. Uh, and you saw a refuge in a small neighborhood pub. And yeah. the locals are curious about you. Uh, how do you explain your research and why is it important? All right. So I'm ready for that question. Let me okay, answer that question. question. <laughs> that question, I would say, why are you asking me these questions? And I mean that sincerely. Like, why are you interested in me? And I think the answer or something is like, because you're different, right? There's something about you that either we know you're not from here, you don't look like you're from here, you don't speak like you're from here, you're different. And that curiosity about difference, like difference for me is what drives my research. And so if you want to understand sort of what I do, look to difference, you know, so difference and not just in people's, but companies. I study why companies or how companies are different. They're different because they come from a different, uh, you know, a country that has a different political environment. They're different because they come from countries that have a different social environment. They're different because they come from countries that have a different economic environment. And so the same reason that these people might be interested in me because I'm a stranger and I'm different, those are the kinds of things that I study, is that how do those differences drive business and drive businesses to do what they do. Interesting. You know, there's this joke. There's this old religion uh, course teacher. He always asked the same question in the final exam. And uh, after 50 years of teaching, he's about to retire. He's, he's, he's giving his last uh, exam. He says, I want to see if I have actually taught anything to somebody. And the question that he always asks is, you know, what was the most important thing in St. Peter's life? And uh, in the exam, he switches the last question and he says, uh, what's the most important thing in St. Paul's life? 
and uh, the students are uh, frustrated because they only pre prepared for the same uh, answers. <laughs> but there's this one guy at the back, he is writing nonstop for the next two hours. And this, the, the professor says, you know, I have accomplished something in life. You know, I have, uh, I have made it, I have touched one person uh, and he's very curious what he's writing. The student says uh, in, the, in the answers, uh, St. Paul was an important person for sure, but I would like to focus on St. Peter. <laughs> and then he writes <laughs> there you go. There's my uh, answer to the question. I'm ready for uh, the St. Peter question, not so much for the St. Paul question. Okay, then. Um, <laughs> what are the omitted variables in IV research? Things that we should have covered more of, uh, things, uh, not actual variable, but uh, the topics, the contexts, the important things that we should have touched. So I've been thinking a lot about this question, and, and, and I, I think this is sort of a matter of taste at some level. Like the, some faculty have, like, I, I just want to preface this by saying that you'll sort of get my, by, by answering this question, you'll get a sense for what the kinds of things I'm interested in, but just because I'm interested in these things isn't necessarily what other faculty are interested in or think that should be studied more or think that, that deserve more attention. But as someone who's interested in difference, I think those kinds of, we haven't fully understood uh, the dimensions of difference or how those different, how difference, right, on social, economic, and political dimensions, how those influence how companies behave or how those influence how companies choose the countries that they're going to operate or how those differences influence the impact or, or the, the consequences for those companies and the decisions that they make. And, and there are so many different ways in which difference manifests or influences how companies behave or how countries receive companies from certain countries, that I think that's an area where I think that while there's been a lot written and a lot done, there's still so much more that we have left to explore and that we haven't explored yet. Okay. Uh, about this ideal curiosity question uh, about creativity in research, what does your mind think of in ideal curiosity? How do you come up with uh, research questions, interesting questions, interesting topics? How does the process work for you? Uh, so because I've been so interested in difference over these last few years, and especially differences in institutions, so social, cultural, and political institutions, in idle times, my mind wanders to those differences. And I've been using those differences often to think about not just questions of international import, but also questions of domestic import as well, is how do these differences amongst people within countries drive sort of how people behave or what they do or how they view the world or how they view other people within their same within their same countries and we've heard a lot about polarization lately and how there is polarization across countries and to me that polarization you know whether you look to sort of brexit right or or or, or even sort of fractionalization polarization within the united states those are often driven by institutional differences within countries, how people define themselves socially, how they view themselves politically, how they uh, have, you know, how, how they how, how they've experienced the world economically and what they're, you know, so so I've been those are the kinds of things that that in idle times, I think, too, because those are the kinds of things right now that are affecting our world um, and, and that are 
you know, impacting many of the of the dynamics that we're observing across countries throughout the world right now. So that's what my mind goes to. Robert, I want to ask you uh, two questions. I want to put them together about uh, the future of the field and the progression of IB. Uh, I mean, uh, about the culture of scholarship that is evolving over time and the next five to 10 years of the field, in your opinion, uh, what's going to happen? Uh, what are we going to gain along the way and lose along the way with this progression? So I don't know if this is exactly answering your question. Let me know, or, you know, you'll, you'll tell me if I'm sort of hitting the sure. right points, but I've, I've lived in this field long enough now. I've been sort of, I started in the doctoral program in 1997. So I've had about 25 years now in this, in this field. Um, what I have observed is sort of, a, a, you know, ebbs and flows. Right? There was a time when I first came into the field that I felt that IB research was hot. Everybody was really interested in it. I'd say the mid-90s, maybe early 90s to mid-90s, IB was really hot. And that's what, you know, when I got into the field, I thought, okay, I'm joining a field that's super hot. Globalization was everywhere. Everybody was really interested in globalization. And, um, and, and I was, you know, little did I know that I was joining a field that was sort of like cresting. Like it was, it was at a, at a peak of interest. Now I've lived long enough and to see sort of what happens as that interest wanes. And, and so, you know, when I was joined, joined the field and I think you guys, you sort of joined around the same time, maybe a few years after I got into the business, um, there were IB departments and IB departments at schools were kind of a popular thing. Um, over time, and as interest in the field waned, those IB departments sort of started to go away and dissolve. And all the folks like me who I entered into an IB department when I joined a doctoral program, as those IB programs dissolved, people were sent back to their disciplinary fields. And so for a while, sort of there was general interest in IB, but it wasn't as hot as it was when we first entered the field. And it sort of like just sort of cruised along for a while. And, you know, there was a little bit of interest, but not a ton of interest. I'd say now we're starting to see a pickup renewed interest in globalization again. And, 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 and a lot of that is due to a lot of the difference that I've been talking about. Sort of people are interested in difference again. Difference is starting to come to the fore. Difference has been driving a lot of the dynamics, the social dynamics, the political dynamics, the economic dyna dynamics within countries and across countries that, that we've observed over the past few years, whether it's populism and nationalism in some countries, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, trade embargoes, trade spats, um, whether it's uh, political disagreements across countries, even war that we're observing now, the, the, there, there seems to be an increasing agree, uh, interest in these, in these globalization topics again. So we're starting to see a pickup. And I think that where we'll see the field go is I, I think that more people will be joining. That's one. And for me, again, this is sort of reflection of my taste or my interest, my own research interests. But I think you're going to see a pickup if you haven't already in research on topics associated with difference and the kinds of frictions that difference can cross, ca cause, not just across countries, but also within countries as well. And so those are the kinds of things that I see happening. And I, I, is that sort of the, an answer to, to the question? Yes, that you yes, exactly right. 
plus uh, when I got on the market uh, or in the field 2005, um, it was important to have a single author paper. <laughs> now it is, you've got like six or seven people because the co-authors, uh, is, everything is at all. Uh, that yeah, was, and that, that's, that's something I've noticed as well. When, as I've been in the field, it was very important to have sort of a, a sole authored piece as a part of the tenure process, I think. Yeah. And I've never really, I mean, I wrote something sole authored because that was something that was required. But for me, the best part about being in this field is doing research with other people. I like the social aspect of what we do. So I, I haven't written very, I mean, other than a book or a couple of books that I wrote in my dissertation and one published paper, I prefer to work with other people. And, and I think you're right. I think there is an increasing trend towards papers with more and more and more co-authors going from, you know, it used to be two, then it was three. And now we see papers with four five and six. It's especially so in the field of, in the psychology discipline. I think that's, that's more common as well. Uh, about uh, advice and mentoring, who was your advisor? So my advisor was, my, I had several, I think Miles Shaver was probably what mm -hmm. one of uh, my closest advisors along with Xavier Martin. So Xavier Martin, Miles Shaver, um, and then I also had Bernie Young was another advisor of mine. And then I benefited from a tremendous amount from just being educated in a department where there were so many talented IB slash strategy scholars. So people like Jose Campa, who was also influential in my career, or Rochelle Sampson, um, Wilbur Chung, Juan Alcacer. Uh, so yeah, I, I benefited from so many people not just sort of my direct advisors like uh, like uh, Xavier and, and Miles, but and, and and Bernie, but so many others as well. And, and that's yeah. one advice that I would have for sort of more junior scholars is is not just who you work with, but also sort of the environment in which you're going to be working. And are there other people who are working sort of not necessarily specifically in your same area, but who can provide you feedback um, just more broadly on the kind on the work that you do. Now the section on advice and mentoring, uh, things that you have done uh, and that gives you some experience to talk about what not to do, but what to do. Uh, what do you wish you had known when you were starting out that would save you so much time, pain and agony? I think that a couple things. The first is that be who you are. Don't be what like schools or certain schools or certain departments might want you to be because that's a way to achieve tenure. Um, I, I've received advice along the way about, well, if you want to get tenure in this specific department, you have to do this kind of work and you have to publish in these kinds of journals and this place, these, these places value this kind of, this kind of thing. You know, part of the reason I chose this profession and I didn't go into banking or trading or some other uh, business, you know, trade was because it allowed me to research and do the kinds of things that I was interested in doing. And I, I think I wish I was more sort of focused on the kinds of things that I was interested in rather than being influenced by the department or the school at which I was at around me. Um, so my advice would be sort of find a place that values you for what you do versus trying to fit into an institution where what you do might not be a good fit. Um, so in, in that sense, 
our profession is a two-sided matching problem, be sure to choose the, the university that, that is the best fit for you. And understand that universities are also looking for people who are the best fit for their own department needs and, and, and try and maximize that process or optimize that process. Uh, that which skills uh, were difficult to develop? Uh, which skills for me? Yeah. I think, well, I guess I, this will be everything in the field, but at, at first I would say the theory portion was the most difficult for me to master because I was pushed and to learn things that I was unfamiliar with. So having to go read literature that I didn't necessarily, uh, that, that I didn't go into the PhD program understanding as well as some other people because they'd been trained in those areas. Mm -hmm. okay, so I got an undergraduate business degree, but I knew very little, for example, of psychology or sociology. And so I had to go, because most of my training was in finance and economics, so I had to go and really learn some of those other literatures, at least to be able to converse with colleagues of mine in that area. So that was hard for me. And then sort of really learning the disciplinary uh, tools, uh, you know, the econometrics, the state-of-the-art econometrics, that was the second piece. So I understood sort of the basic statistics part, but really learning the tools that were best, you know, the, the latest, greatest state of the art, that was the second piece that was, that was the, the challenging part for me. Um, what are the top three mistakes that ID scholars uh, are making that you think they should avoid? The first is, um, the first, I think, is, is is related to what I was talking about before. So, again, when we when I got into the field, there were lots of IB departments that understood that IB, in some sense, is an interdisciplinary uh, area of research. And so now it's not that way. So IB scholars often end up in disciplinary departments. They'll end up in strategy groups, or they'll end up in psychology groups, or they'll end up in management groups, or they'll end up in sociology groups. I'd say that the, one of the things for IB scholars is to, to make sure you stay true to that IB portion, especially if that's what you're most interested in. Because a lot of IB scholars are convinced or socialized by the department around them to do work that may be further afield from what they're most interested in. So that's one. The second I would say is that we have this tendency to just kind of do research that retreads old ground. So makes sort of slight contributions to areas that we sort of already understand. And, and, and um, so that, that's the second bit. Um, and the third, and it's kind of related to the first, is that while it's important to be true to your IB self and to study IB questions, I think one of the mistakes we make is not trying to engage with the discipline by sort of staying and only going to those IB conferences, by only interacting with IB scholars, we sometimes miss out on the opportunity to make contributions to the discipline. So while you should be true to who you are and continue to pursue those IB, uh, you know, those IB phenomena that, that you're interested in, I think it's important, the onus is upon us to make a case to the discipline why we matter and why we're making contributions to the discipline. So going to conferences, you know, if you're more IB psychologists, go to some of the psychology conferences to make a case for why your work matters to psychology. If you're an IB sociologist, 
Go to the sociology conferences to make a case for why your work matters. If you're a strategy scholar, go to those strategy conferences or economics conferences to make a case for why your IB work matters, IB work matters and is relevant for those audiences. So that's sort of the third mistake is that, that, that sometimes I see people stay, remain too insular in the IB side. Perfect. Robert, earlier uh, you mentioned uh, in baseball, for example, a star performer is having 70% failure rate, and which is a good thing, right? What is the trick, in your opinion, for handling the review process, uh, journal uh, submission and review process? Uh, do you have any pointers for uh, junior faculty or uh, PhD students at the early onset? of their careers? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I mentioned before is that how this notion of taste. And reviewers, while they have certain standards, also are influenced by their own individual tastes. And so I, I always tell people that when you're writing, you, you're, you're not trying to write the perfect, flawless article that is going to be accepted right away. That's because that's never the case. What you're trying to do is write an article that meets a particular quality standard and you're trying to write for an R&R, &R, right? Because what happens is as long as you have a, a certain level of quality that's high, from there, the reviewers will have different tastes and then they'll move that particular article in the direction of what their in own individual tastes are. And that's how that paper will evolve from there. So again, you're not trying, and I've seen this among so many scholars is that they can't let go of a paper because it's not perfect. There's no such thing as perfect, at least for us humans, for us mortals, right? So if there's no such thing as perfect, we have to be okay at some point letting other people see it and evaluate it. So you want to write a paper that is high enough quality so that people value it for that quality. And then from there, if you get an R&R, &R, congratulations, that's great. Go celebrate. And then tackle the ways to improve it from there. Whether you know, there are some quality improvements that can be made and the reviewers help you make that, or if there are some sort of taste issues and they drive it in a particular direction of their own liking of their own taste. So again, you're writing for an R&R, you're not writing for perfection. That's what I tell, which I try to tell scholars. Uh, thank you. Now for the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? Do I still have a chance to be third base for the New York Mets? And that's an easy answer, <laughs> absolutely not. I don't think I ever had the, the, the ability to be third baseman for the New York Mets. Um, no, I think you, this, this is a great conversation. I appreciated the questions that, that you asked and, and, and I'm glad to, to, to be able to take some time and, and to Thank answer. Thank you for your time. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Elias. I appreciate it.